Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, Molly Crabapple and Paul Mason in conversation for the launch of Molly's book, Drawing Blood. Hello everybody, welcome to this, what is going to be um, the first of a series of uh, Little Atoms events in association with this wonderful Waterstone store. And it's our massive pleasure to host Molly Crabapple's book launch, no less, um, for this book here, Drawing Blood, which you can see at the front, which you should be buying, obviously, as it's her book launch, but it would be also remiss of me not to point out that um, Paul Mason has also got a book called Post-Capitalism, A Guide to Our Future, and it would also be remiss of me not to point out that also Little Atoms magazine is on sale here if you don't already own it, but most of you should, so. I'm just going to introduce Paul, and then Paul is going to introduce Molly, and they're going to talk for probably, what, about? 40 minutes. 40 minutes, something like that, and then there'll be questions from the audience. There's a couple of microphones that will come around as well. Um, So just wait for the microphone, because we are recording this for a podcast. After the talk is finished, both Molly and Paul will be signing books at the back towards that end of this floor. Um, so again, remember, the point of you being here, as well as looking to these people, is to buy their books. That's very important. So Paul Mason is a, a journalist and broadcaster, until recently the um, economics editor of Channel 4 News, which he left recently to spend more time with his freelance work. He's the author of a number of books, most recently Post-Capitalism, A Guide to Our Future, which we've already introduced you to. And um, he recently made a film series about the Greek debt crisis. This is a coup which uh, Little Athens' publisher, 89 Off, is really delighted to have worked with BritDoc on. He also had the dubious honour of being described in the House of Commons as a revolutionary Marxist by none other than uh, George Osborne. So, um, (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to awkwardly walk behind our two guests and let Paul introduce Molly to you. We're really privileged tonight to have Molly here, and you'll hear why if you don't know about it. One of the weird things about introducing somebody, what you're supposed to do is give them a little biography. But when they've written their autobiography, that's like a spoiler alert. Because you're, me- you're meant to read the book to find out that, she, st- that she started started out as a nude poser for sketch artists and ended up drawing Khalid Sheikh Mohammed in um, 
at his trial in Guantanamo under the harassing eye of the American censors and has most recently been documenting uh, life under ISIS uh, in Raqqa and, and elsewhere in Syria. And in between that was part of the Occupy movement and got arrested in a very iconic photograph, as I remember. Now, I first met you. I didn't first meet you. I first became aware of your existence when a little tube came through my door with a print on it, that's, that, which was one of your prints, signed. It said, Paul, you rock, which is a very nice way to meet anybody. And, um, and, and then I interviewed you, didn't I? Came you did, to, you did. She's got kind of a bat cave, haven't you? It's a bat cave. You I, I, no, no, it's, it's, it is my, uh, my bohemian loft of clutter and horrors. Still. And art. And, and, and with art all lined along the walls and paint smeared across the rugs. And you live there? I do, yes. And so do a lot of other people intermittently. Yeah. We do. <laughs> and, um, and I interviewed you there, and that was the second encounter we had. It was a bit stilted because my producers didn't quite buy the whole idea. It was Occupy Art. You can still Google it. We did a piece on Newsnight about Occupy Art. And, and we could talk about that. And then the third time I met you, you took me to a bar where the waitresses were topless and the slogan of it was, We Hire Drunk Sluts. So, I think you're, did I take you to that? He might, be you confused, he might be confusing me with another dark-haired girl. So, so we can talk about third, third, fourth, and second wave feminism as we go. But what I want to say is, um, it's rare that you that you ever meet anybody who who crosses the boundaries in the way that you've done. And we're going to explore some of that. And I don't mean in the transgressive way, but I mean literally in the kick-ass. Here's a boundary. Let me cross it. Uh, you know, and for somebody who's you know, relatively young, uh, it's probably going to cross some more boundaries. Um, so let's start with, you know, like, tell us how you get. Okay, well, I'm going to say this. When I, then I looked, googled it, and, I, and the, about the time of your last launch, there was this, uh, there was a kind of feature about you, one of these kind of features, uh, and it said, Molly, uh, born far rockaway. The far rockaway is like in the depths of it means quote unquote scum, yeah. yeah uh, it's the depths of Queens in New York City. Um, and so, how do you get from there to to where you are now? How do you tell tell us the brief version, and then oh. we'll explore it. Oh dear Lord, I feel like I should have bullet points for this. Uh, you take one uh, Puerto Rican Marxist father who uh, raises you on Emma Goldman biographies and Huey Newton's revolutionary suicide. You take uh, one brilliant mom who is an illustrator, but whose industry is tragically crushed by, by um, new technology advances. You grow up in New York, you find that you're completely unsuited for honest employment, and so you become a naked model, because it's the only way to earn $100 an hour when you're 19, even though occasionally it involves having live crickets poured on your faces from music videos. You go from that, you start drawing, because it's the only way you know how to make friends. Then you begin documenting the most famous and depraved nightclub of Boomier's New York, the type of place where the Saudi princelings and the men who wrecked our economy blow through $10,000 a night of champagne. When and you also, say documenting, what do you mean? I mean that I would sit on the steps of the stage and I would draw it. I would draw it every night. And they night. paid you to do that? They did. I was, I was their house to lose the track. I, I, I've always been good at talking my way into jobs that did not formally exist before <laughs> I invented them. <laughs> also, I was obsessed with to lose the track because to lose the track, like me, was a short person who liked alcohol and used art to make friends with pretty girls. <laughs> so you work as the house artist for this nightclub. Then the entire economy crashes. And you're already intimately, intimately acquainted with how depraved and horrifying these men who've destroyed the economy are. But now the whole economy has crashed around you. 
And your work seems like eating too many marshmallows and you feel sick from it and it feels like a betrayal of everything. And then Occupy Wall Street happens outside your window and you start drawing it because that's what you know how to do. You know how to draw life that's around you. And then things go on from there. And let's just, all right, let's pause there. Because you really literally do, without giving a, a kind of an assassin a clue about how to do it. Um, you do live quite close to Wall Street, yeah? And, and you saw it literally happening right there. And, it did. And then you drew it and then they took the drawings and they made the posters out of them and they went on the streets with your drawing. It meant I mean, more, how cool was that? It meant more than any gallery. Galleries are bullshit. Artists are always posing like we're revolutionaries, but we're Fabergé egg makers at our heart. But in that moment, I felt like, my God, this has, this has relevance. I, I did more practical things for Occupy. I turned my apartment into a press room. I let people use my power outlets and drink my whiskey, warm themselves on my caffeine. But I also would draw posters for it and within an hour, my poster would go from my drawing table to the streets, and this was the most amazing and vital use of my art that I have ever seen in my life, and it meant so much to me. How aware were you at that moment of the role art and popular art, and drawing actually, has played in revolutions? I've always had an ambiguous relationship. So, as the daughter of Latino Marxist, I grew up on Diego Rivera, he's one of my favorite artists. But Diego Rivera, I think, exemplifies the contradictions of the Marxist artist. On one hand, you know, he's drawing these like amazing tributes, you know, to, um, to communism, you know, to the workers. But on the other hand, he's getting paid by Rockefeller to do it, let's be frank. I mean, if there ever was a champagne socialist, it was Diego Rivera. And so I was always somewhat skeptical about artists and the role that we played. And in fact, I think I avoided having my art be political for a long time because I felt like I didn't deserve to stand on that space. And of course, Diego Rivera had his pants like up to here. Does does it really go with any kind of revolutionary? No, no, so, no, no, no. You're wrong. At the at the uh, Detroit, um, you're, at the Detroit one, he has actually this amazing uh, back view of himself on the panel, and he kind of has plumber's crack going on. <laughs> <laughs> so okay, so so you were aware of the of the of the realist, you know, and the kind of Soviet realist and the tradition in art, and you and your drawings really did become viral. Um, and, and, the, and for those of us who don't, those who don't know, the Occupy movement in New York City in particular had a big relationship to performance art as well. So people would get away with doing things as performance art because they were really just demos, uh, because they said they were performance art. Okay, and then and then it gets a bit, then it gets serious, doesn't it? You get arrested. What, why did you get? Why did you end up looking like Joan of Arc as two New York City cops uh, bundled you in the back because of Because photos are lies. No, I got arrested. I'm completely convinced because police have quotas of the amount of people they need to arrest in New York, and I looked kind of short and dopey, and they figured I wouldn't give them a lot of trouble. I'm completely convinced that this that this was the reason. What was the demo? Uh, it was the demo for the one year anniversary of Occupy, and I was you know, going out that morning. I think in the way that a lot of um, not particularly believing Christians go to church because they feel like it won't do a lot of harm and <laughs> might even do good, you know, in rare percentage of scenarios. So that's how that's how I was going, and um, then they arrested so many people that day because Occupy was still a threat. It, it still was a threat to them, even if so many of us had lost faith in it. And um, I was very angry after my arrest, and I wasn't angry because I had a particularly rough time. I was not beaten up, which is more than you can say for many people arrested in New York. But I was angry because even the easiest arrest, and I would count mine as that, is traumatic. And America's foundational sin, I believe, is the lightness with which we arrest and incarcerate people, the complete ease that white middle-class Americans have with locking people in cages. And so I felt that if I had the easiest arrest, and it still messed me up in the head, then Imagine just being a young black guy who's just arrested for being black and being outside. 
And so don't piss Molikrab off a lot, because then, what, then, as I remember it, I'm trying, I might, like you, maybe some of the details might be hazy, but as I remember it, you go straight down to the courtroom and start drawing arrests. I did. I, I, did, uh, I did draw people who were arrested. Though, I have to say something about, about Paul, and this is something... I want to give context for why this tube of art arrived at his door. It's, it's not just a random favor I give to people, uh, however, however nice it may be. It's because Paul's book, Why It's Kicking Off Everywhere, was a book that really, really influenced me. Because I felt that 2011 was this year where it wasn't just about New York, right? And it wasn't just about Tunisia. It wasn't just about uh, the anti-austerity protests that had happened uh, in late 2010 in London or the anti-austerity protests that were currently happening in Greece. It was this moment of international solidarity. And I really uh, looked to Paul's book um, as one of the ways to get kind of an intellectual background on that. And I actually, I knew his address because he doesn't put it online because um, he uh, DM'd me after I tweeted about how cool his book was. <laughs> and... What, see, look, without getting into kind of mutual backslapping arrangement here. But, <laughs> that, that was not arranged beforehand, by the way, I'll have you but, know. So, so, but what I remember about, your, you know, like the highlights of your work, we'll talk about in a minute, but some of the, like, detailed stuff. So you start drawing the harassment of sex workers on the streets of New York City. And what interests me about that, so it's, you'll know the detail better than me, but what I remember about it is that it was detailed. And uh, we in journalism, there's plenty of journalists in this room, some of them, uh, like me, uh, engage with social movements, is that many of us believe that, well, as Mies van der Rohe said, you know, God is in the detail. But for us, God is also in the detail. It's the detail that tells the story. And you just didn't go, oh, how terrible sex workers being harassed. There's, there's like a list of what you can get busted for, isn't there, against your drawing. What would tell us about that? In New York, they had a law that if you were found basically with any number of condoms on you, that it was proof that you were a sex worker and could be arrested. Um, as you can imagine, this was an excuse for arresting black women, um, as most of uh, New York laws are actually excuses for arresting black people. But yeah, it was, on, it was on the books, and they even gave forms to police where they had a blank space. How many condoms did you find on this person that you could you know, use as an excuse for why you had arrested this woman? But I, I, so, I so agree with Paul that the God being in the details. And I think that as I moved from drawing to writing, I, I would think, like, what do, what do I have to offer? You know, I'm, I'm, I've only been writing for four years. And it was that drawing had trained me to see sharply. It had trained me to see all of those details. I remember um, when I went to Guantanamo Bay, and I'm, I'm speeding a little bit ahead. I'm sure Paul will introduce me much better than I can. But um, my, my, my eyes were obsessed with these details because it was this place utterly without irony and without self-knowledge. And that was reflected everywhere. And for instance, I was waiting to get into Camp Delta, which was an abandoned camp that they um, held these largely innocent men in. And the guards on the wall of their chamber had a chart. And it was a chart that was green to red, and it was, check your spiritual health. <laughs> and I feel like me being an artist enabled me to look and find that little piece of paper and single that out. <laughs> so so let's, but let's just, before we do that, because I'm going to, the only way you can do something like this is sequentially. Let's just go back to 2011. What do you think now about what happened in, in, in Occupy? How big a thing was it? What, how big a, since you've kind of veered uh, into much more dangerous and scratchy places than downtown New York, what, what do you think now about what, what it achieved and what it didn't achieve? Oh my God, it was massive. I mean, I, I think that so often I lived in Wall Street and I, I would think, I would hear these 
some shouts coming from the street, and I'd think, ah, they've come with the pitchforks, it's time now. And then it would be about a sports team. And <laughs> Occupy, they had come with pitchforks, right? No, Occupy was, it was one of the first times that I, that so many of us felt like Americans actually, you know, would stand up on a mass scale and it would actually be threatening. I mean, I remember I spent a lot of time when I was 18 at anti-Iraq war protests. And you know, there, there were like 500,000 people at these protests in New York. And they meant nothing to power. They meant nothing. You know, a million, two million people could have marched, and it didn't matter. They, they didn't care. Whereas Occupy, they, they cared, and you could tell they cared because they were beating up my friends. And you can say, oh, Occupy was less hardcore than this or that, but ultimately, we're only hardcore in relationship to our circumstances. And the new NYPD is more fortified and more fitted out with tech than many armies. Mm-hmm. But what's it done to American politics long term? We look now, say now. I mean, obviously, we're all very interested in Sanders, and we maybe talk a bit about that. But where does it leave America? I think that uh, the Black Lives Matter movement is one of the most hopeful and amazing movements in American politics that I have uh, that I've seen in my lifetime, to be quite frank. And as someone who's very involved in Occupy, I will admit that Black Lives Matter makes Occupy feel like a children's play in many ways. <laughs> but because you know, we we were fighting in many ways for abstract things, whereas these people are fighting for their brothers and their sons and themselves not to be murdered on the street by the state. So it's a different sense of urgency. However, I think that what Occupy did was it taught huge groups of people how you respond to a protest movement like that, how you take over a highway, how you deal with tear gas, how you resist. It, it taught the techniques of resistance. And of course in Berkeley uh, and, and the, in the West Coast, there were some very uh, much feistier, and I real, uh, you know, I people of color, oppressed people were on the streets and blocking highways there in 2011 as well. Okay, so occupies over, and and, and and your career takes a kind of turn, doesn't it? But let's talk about the shell game because that that's an interesting thing. Tell us about so Molly's are this giant series of of big paintings. Tell us about the shell game. Shogun was actually my attempt to mash together what I had done before, which were these carnival-esque, uh, bright, sexy paintings about nightlife, with what I was currently interested in, which were these uh, global rebellions that were happening. And so I did these series of nine paintings, about six feet tall each, each of which represented an uprising that was going on in the world. So um, the um, the Quince Eme movement in Spain, or the um, Syntagma Square protests in Greece or Occupy. And what I tried to do was I tried to use this sort of Hieronymus Bosch level of detail and of symbolism to represent these things, not as like an accurate literal way, but in the way that even when you wake up from a dream and the sort of surrealist images are still clinging to the inside of your eyelids and it's like almost feels more real than the actual reality. That's what I was trying to do with it. They were like hallucinations. They were like, they were like very tableaus. And there was a t- the, the point where you launched it. I mean, it's interesting, isn't it? Because you, as art, they are figurative. They, there's a lot of cats and mice and pigs. There, w- there were. Guess, guess who the pigs represent? Uh, no, I didn't have pigs. I had cats. Because pig, pigs, pigs, are, pigs are smart in the press. Okay, so, so the pigs are cats. Okay, so yeah. I'm really I must have been on something. Uh, but, but, but then, what was Economics interesting? Economics editor. Yeah. She, you, you, you managed to launch them outside the gallery system, which at the time when I was covering it, was an interesting thing because you know there's a lot of people who say, "Ah, oh, you're a revolutionary artist," but then you just said, "Well, fuck you to the galleries, didn't you?" And just launched. You actually made your own gallery, which is the artists here. I mean, to people who are not aware, 
the galleries are, the, the Google and the Facebook of the art world, aren't they? They absolutely are. So the standard model for a success, a commercially successful fine artist, and I'm, I'm not, I'm not talking about like successful and middle class, but I'm talking about like millionaire successful, is you um, hit on a successful formula and self-plagiarize it until you die at increasingly large scales, usually made by assistants to sell to oligarchs. <laughs> that, that, that is how art works. And like maybe there's some transgression like made in the content of it, but that is actually the economic model of it. And um, I, to me, the Chelsea, New York gallery world was so impenetrable. I might as well have been like a peasant trying to get into Versailles. It was so foreign to me. I had no idea how anyone got a show. Unless I, you remember why, because your work is figurative, isn't it? it? And you also know? because I dropped out of it, because I went to the Fashion Institute of Technology and I dropped out. That's also why. I did not go to a good school. Um, so I, I had just, I had no way in. My work was figurative. Um, it wasn't the type of work that appealed to them. But I wanted to do big paintings. I wanted to, I mean, I'm an artist, right? I wanted to like work on this giant scale. And so I was like, with this. I don't care about your model. Your model might serve Jeff Koons well uh, for his um, cottage industry, but it's not something that I want, and I did it myself. Yeah, and so, you know, when we write the history of this period, see, we're all trying to write the history of the period we're in, in real time, the journalists in the room, that's what our job is. But the interesting thing to me is that what, we, what I was looking for was form and content coming together. I, you, you can write, do a revolutionary um, content thing, but what's the form? And to me, that, that, that amazing launch you had, which is just a shot you hired, and, and there were some interesting people at that launch, uh, was, a, was, a, was a moment, actually, because you go, okay, we can sell paintings, and you, you presumably you sold them and people gave you money for them, and, and there was no or few little middlemen, yeah? And no middlemen. No, okay, so that's that's a thing, isn't it? And then, you know, what you could have done is gone, okay, you know, I've been arrested, I've written revolutionary art. Uh, for most people in eighteen forty eight that was it, that was good enough. You can dine out on that and, and you can do your Richard Wagner's in his funny kind of dressing gown for, for years because he's been on the barricades in Revol in eighteen forty nine. But you didn't, did you? This was like, instead for you, this was a provocation you'd really started getting going. This, this was the beginning. I mean <laughs> Once you, so this is what I, I realized kind of with launching the book. This is, I feel like, the great evil secret of even tinily, tinily successful writers such as myself. There's this road that you can go down that's very successful. And what this road is, is that you stand up in front of audiences and you rehash your past greatest hits. And people like give you money and love. And maybe uh, young people sleep with you because they're impressionable. So, but the problem with this road is it keeps you from doing anything ever interesting again. Because it simultaneously is people telling you you're great, which makes you think you're great, which removes your critical facilities and makes you lazy, but also it completely exhausts you. You don't actually have time to do anything else. So you're completely exhausted in the rehashing of your greatest hits and the feeding of your own ego, and it effectively removes you from doing anything interesting until you like break this, break this habit. So what did you do? I went to Guantanamo Bay. <laughs> How did the how did you persuade the American state to let you go to Guantanamo? So this is something very interesting about Guantanamo Bay. Guantanamo Bay in that era had a slogan that was a safe, legal, transparent, humane. <laughs> and um, so uh, the way they fulfilled the slogan was having these very Potemkin Village style tours where they would take the journalists through, and um, you would be at the hospital with a force feeding chair. And you would um, be in the courtroom with Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, and you'd never ever see anything. You'd never see anything real. But it was very interesting and insightful because when you're seeing a propaganda tour, 
You don't learn a lot about what they're doing propaganda about, but you sure do learn a lot about the psychology of a propagandist, don't you? I mean, that's something that they put on ample display. But the way I was able to persuade um, them to let me go to Guantanamo is just because artists aren't respected in America. And I said, I'm an artist. I would like to draw pictures. And they said, that can't possibly mean anything. Come along. <laughs> You're a useless individual. <laughs> so you get that. Tell us about the smiley faces. That, that stays in me a long time. Guantanamo is a place that's built on erasure because the only way that you can have um, a war crime as atrocious as Guantanamo continue is by erasing the individuality of all of the victims, taking them from being you know, men with individual loves and hatreds and families and legitimate grievances against the US and replacing them with these boogeymen in orange jumpsuits. And everything about Guantanamo is built on erasing the humanity and individuality of the men that are being oppressed inside it. And one of the ways that they do this is they have this very, this very rigorous um, operational security, they call it, for images, which makes it so that if you're a photographer, you're playing a game of Twister. They'll be like, you can't get anyone's heads, and you can't get more than uh, like one door, and you can't get any cameras. And so before you know it, you start like, just pointing your camera at the floor, because that's all you can get, right? Because anything that's not like that, they'll delete off your camera. They will delete it. But they'll yeah, they'll delete, they'll delete it personally. They, 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 they search your cameras at the end of every day. But I'm an artist, and so I could draw around that. And they told me, you can't draw people's faces. And I said, I don't really care about the individuality of whatever 19-year-old you know, who signed up to do this terrible thing. It's really about the system. I, I don't mind not drawing that 19-year-old's face. And instead, I drew these sort of blank masks. Because I wanted to, if I was being censored, make that censorship explicit. I wanted to draw the censorship. And so I, I drew them just yeah. blank, blank faces. And what's the slogan of Guantanamo? Honor bound to defend freedom. No, the, the sticker. Oh, oh. It don't get more better than this. That's actually, that's not their slogan. They, well, uh, Guantanamo Bay has um, a gift shop. And, that, and, that's, and that's because um, it is very committed to the notion that it is, there's nothing sinister about it. It is just a U.S. Caribbean military base. And a, another U.S. Caribbean military base would certainly have a gift shop with um, military base name, uh, Little Princess uh, t-shirts and glitter, glitter skulls, and so does Guantanamo guy, you know, because that's, they would, these are the people who would have sold uh, commemorative beer signs at Buchenwald and not realized that there was anything wrong with it. That is, that is what Guantanamo is like. So, what did they think of your drawings? What did the guys say? Because they did, they, did, they did eventually engage, didn't they? They did, I mean... Well, not so, the, the inmates you can't communicate with, no, so it's just no the one. soldiers. No one can communicate with the inmates. Though um, one of the the inmate I profiled was released later, and he enjoyed my piece, and it meant more to me than like anything else, because because he was so disempowered, and because he was kept from and he was kept legally from speaking with me. I was worried that I was just projecting on him like blank, and the fact that he, he liked it meant a great deal to me. No, they they're very charming to you in person. I mean, it's it's America. We're good at PR. <laughs> this is you know one of our industries. I feel like we helped found one of our countrywide achievements, but. <laughs> They were very angry at me when the piece was published, and they were angry at me because I didn't just write about the prison, I wrote about the apparatus of propaganda. And the uh, Guantanamo Bay head of press called my employers to scream that I had um, made him look like a tool. <laughs> <laughs> and he was very upset. But then they let you back, didn't they? They did, but that was because I did, that was no, but that was because I got my I got everything arranged before the piece was published. Right. Okay. They actually wouldn't give me my security pass. I was on I'm like in the airport in Florida, and they're like not giving me my, my security clearance and, until they finally did. But they uh, I don't know if I'll be allowed back a third time. I think that scam only works once. <laughs> okay, right. 
So that's, again, so th at this point, we've skipped over one thing. So at this point, you know, you're most definitely into the journalistic documentation of the world. At what point did you think that I, because there is art, and art can be you know, social, but it's still art, isn't it? In, in a sense, artists do um, jealously guard their ability to construct and structure reality as they want it to be. At what, because journalism isn't that. Journalism is telling the story. At what point did you think you'd flipped over? Honestly, I think at that moment in 2012 when New York felt like it was in the embers of Occupy, I think I wanted to find where those fires were still burning, and I felt like the best way that I could engage it was as, as a documentarian, as someone who was recording it. I think that was kind of what compelled me to do it. Yeah. And I, I want to ask you something, because this is something that I ask myself, and I don't have any straight answers to it. Can art change the world, Paul? Art. Art. Hmm. See, I think it's interesting, isn't it? Because the art that is, see, in the back room of here, there's a whole room of fantastic art and photography groups, which I urge you, once you bought ours, buy theirs as well. But uh, I think we have a very weird view of what art is, because we, uh, to use a Marxist term, we've reified it. Um, I, I, I'm doing a thing for Radio 3, which will come out soon, uh, about revolution in classical music. And in, in researching it, I asked myself, were there any composers part of the Paris Commune, the 1871 Paris Commune? We share a kind of mutual obsession with the Paris Commune and art within it. Courbet was in it. There's some amazing drawing of women soldiers uh, by a Basque artist. And, and, and the, so art was functional there. But I recently found out that one of the 30 organizers of the Paris Commune was a composer, an ethnomusicologist called Salvador Daniel. And, and none of his, when we tried to search for this, um, for, the, for Salvador Daniel's work, there's none of it recorded whatsoever. And yet he is a minor composer of the French mid-19th mid century. But what is recorded by him was that he, his ethnomusicology was to record the songs of the Maghreb, of, of the Algerian, North, North African Arab world. And so now the only recordings we have that, that link us, that he died on the barricades, he literally was a organizer of the barricade fighting and died and he was the head of the Paris Conservatoire of Music at the same time which is quite a big thing in music it's like being head of, the, of any conservatoire Daniel had, had transcribed a lot of Arab songs and so what do we find now feminist algae life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much like unexpected medical costs that's why united healthcare provides health protector guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out-of-pocket costs learn more at uh1.com hold up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. 
real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Syrian singers are singing his song. No, I only know that because I stumbled upon it. That's art. That's art. And his, he changed the world. But to, un- unfortunately, his art didn't. And um, therefore, about the comic, what do we remember? Kobe. We just remember Kobe, and we remember Rambo, because Rambo, as a young guy, went, as a very young guy, went to the commune and records something weird that went on to him there. So that's my answer. Art probably only does change the world when it's reproducible, so you've got to be able to be reproducible. And, and sometimes the artist has to just give up the art to change the world. That's my view. Anyway, what, about you? what do you think? I think art can change the world, but usually not in ways that the art ever, the artist ever intends. And I think that the reproducibility and the popularity is the most essential thing. This is um, not a change the world thing, but it's an example of a symbol traveling in a very, very bad way. Or one bad way. So there are these uh, Shia militias in Iraq that are currently fighting ISIS, but that are accused of um, very terrible war crimes themselves, and including... Uh, having people vote on their Instagram accounts about whether or not to kill to murder prisoners. So these, you know, they're, they're terrible groups. But they um, appropriated the symbol of the Punisher, which is American comics character. <laughs> and um, if you look at them, they have the Punisher stenciled on their helmets. They have, you know, they wear Punisher masks. They, the, Punisher, the Punisher is um, a visual icon that has traveled from America, um, probably through American soldiers occupying Iraq, to Iraqi Shia militias that are um, committing war crimes and fighting against ISIS. And it's art intrinsically involved in the world and history in a way that the creator never, ever would have wanted or intended. Yeah. yeah. And so, all right, because uh, we could talk forever, but let's just, before we get to uh, the Arab world, let's go to the even crazier world uh, of Greece. Um, so what, what happened? You and Laurie Penny contacted me and you said, we're going, we're going to do it. And, I, and so Laurie Penny's a writer. At that time, you were mainly a drawer or artist, and she's mainly a writer. And uh, you said, we're going to go to Greece in 2012 and, and do a documentary book, which and you got some, a contract for it. And I said to you, you've got to read this, this Hunter S. Thompson thing, didn't I? Where Hunter S. Thompson goes with, um, with the, the, the illustrator and, and goes crazy. As if I wouldn't know Ralph's death. Yeah, but, but, but why? Yeah, but, but, but the thing is, then you were even crazier. What, what, what went on there? And tell us, because Greece is very heavily in our minds here. There's a few Greek people here. And, and you know, what happened? If I'm going to talk about Discordia, I have to talk about the man that actually made it possible, which is Yanis Bavulios, who's somewhere. Where is, where is he? Who, uh, who Don't helped, make him even more so who, who, um, who is an amazing uh, journalist who showed us so much of Greece, and for, without whom I know that I personally would have been lost. We uh, did a short book, a very heavily illustrated book, about protest in Greece in the year after the Syntagma Square protests had faded. And it was, I think, us both looking for that, the dregs of 2011, the dregs of that moment, uh, that sort of ecstatic moment of protest culture that was very much gone in New York. And we. Um, it was a very formative thing for me because I had never worked closely with a journalist before. I didn't know how journalists worked. I didn't know what an interview was like. I was like a typical artist. I just sat in my studio and I like drew my little lines all day and didn't bathe for a really long time. That's why we artists have so many friends. And so I was able to go to Greece with uh, Lori and um, work with Yanis as well. And I was able to see very up close how two very, very gifted journalists work. 
and then boom, you're in the Arab world, and you're in what you're doing now. Tell us about that. Hmm. I've spent the last um, three years doing a lot of work about uh, Syrian refugees. I've done work on them with Dr. Fat Waters in Iraqi Kurdistan, as well as in the camps in Lebanon. I've been to Syria only once, uh, to Azaz, which is a border town. And also I've done a lot of work um, on the Turkish border. And I think that perhaps what keeps drawing me back to the Syrian war and doing work about the Syrian refugee crisis is the fundamental challenge to every certainty. Um, that people cling to. Uh, the, refu the pattern of refugees and migrants is a fundamental challenge to the idea that the first world is something that can barricade itself off from the rest of the world. It's a fundamental challenge, um, or a it raises fundamental questions about um, armed revolution, about international solidarity, about good people choosing wrong sides. It's the worst and most brutal war of our generation, and it continues in this way. And it was started with protests that were begun with utter idealism. And so I suppose that that's something that, that keeps drawing me back. And I think, you know, among the journalists I know who cover this, and of course, you know, everybody who does, in a, in a way, they don't have to do it. None of, nobody who covers it at its front end has to do it. But I think what I, I would say about your work, again, it's very keen on detail, isn't it? It's very keen on things like, there's this guy, he does one thing, but he also does another thing. And what we see is, you know, we see this kind of massive, you know, uh, disempowered people looking pretty similar. They flow past the cameras. The guys stand there and do their grandstanding. Your thing is different, isn't it? And what, what have you learned in the process of getting into the deep detail of the Syrian experience inside ICE? Because you should have made, actually, you're doing a project about the experience of people under ISIS occupation. Tell us about that. One, probably the project I'm proudest of in life, because it's like with the collaborator who I most admire, is a project I did with a young Syrian writer named Marwan Hisham. We did a series of collaborations for Vanity Fair, where Marwan gave me photos that he had taken surreptitiously of life in ISIS-occupied uh, Raqqa and Mosul, and also in rebel-held Aleppo, not, not ISIS-occupied. And I drew from them, and then he wrote accompanying essays. And you know, ISIS territory is a place where they're is not photojournalism. Uh, the only journalist operating there is John Cantley, who is a captive who has been brainwashed enough to um, you know, be making propaganda films for them. And it's something that you see either only through ISIS-made propaganda or through Western propaganda, which uh, seeks to take ISIS and use it as a justification to inflict all sorts of violence on all Muslims. And so I wanted to create images with someone who's currently living there that had all of the craft and all the care and all the time that uh, photojournalism would. And um, I feel so honored to do it. It's a collaborator that I still work with closely. We're still creating and imagining projects. And I mean, I think that this is something really important because I always, there's always something dubious about us, right? Like being Western journalists going to these places. Like, why are we here, man? Like, there, there were such talented writers there. And I think that what I've valued um, a lot was giving platforms to people who are so much smarter than me and so much more talented than me, frankly, but just don't have the access to that because they're not from New York and I was born there. And this was definitely one of those things. And so, you know, as well as seeing the edges of conflict and, and certainly documenting the horrors of conflict, you've actually, you've, you told me you, you've, run, you've spoken to people who support ISIS. I've spoken to people who know people who support ISIS. I've, yeah. heard, I've heard their reasoning. Um, and how much of a 
had mind bender, like word, 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 let's not use any in, in that burden, uh, you know, swear words. But how much of a mind bender is, is that to meet people who even met people, to know the milieu that, that support this thing, which to many of us is just like a crazy. Well, it's like if you were in Europe in the 1930s and you knew people who supported Nazism. I sure bet, like a lot of journalists in Europe in the 1930s knew people who supported Nazis. And what, what is it that drives it, do you think? I think it's the same thing. That it's a very dangerous thing, and it's not unique uh, to this at all. It's something that's dangerous that um, people from all sorts of backgrounds use, which is a sense of um, victimization, very often a very justified sense of victimization, a sense that you're being pressed by the world because of your identity. Um, combined with an idea that the only protection that one has is raw power and the idea that um, things like human rights are fig leaves that are invented by the West to justify their own um, crimes. And so w when, you, when you take these two things together, the idea that you're victimized and the idea that power is the only way to prevent you from being victimized and the idea that um, you know, like your ideals, you know, universal things don't matter and that fundamentally you're always just reduced to your communal identity, um, that's the basis for so many horrifying movements. And the reason that it's important to look at and to confront is because any idea that's dangerous, right, has an element of truth, you know? There are groups that are very victimized. Western powers have used human rights as justification for interventionist wars. Very often, people are treated entirely as they are based on if they hold a rich world passport or on their race. Like these are not things that are wrong, and yet when they're taken to their ultimate conclusions, lead to terrifying, terrifying and evil things being seen. And it's fair to say that both in, in Marlon's articles and your drawings, there's a lot of co co concentration, again, the detail yeah. of, of class, of ethnicity, of locality, of, of, you know, of what the people do uh, in a... In, in, all of us who've written historically, for example, about the Holocaust, have tried to get beyond it's six million people. No, it's six million one times one people. And what did they do? They were this, they were that. And I think one of the things that I would say about your work is that you are obsessed with the detail and the reality of what you can do. Let's finish and not throw it open before we do. Just by saying this, Molly. It's all, the easy question is, uh, what are you doing next? But the hard question is, what would you do if there was, what would you do if an oligarch did give you a lot of money? And said, what would you do in that night manager type of way here? You know, what would you do? What would you? What, what, what art do you want to make? I can't even think this way, man. Like, I, I always wish, like, there are these people who have, like, these great plans, and they're like, oh, my God, I have this, like, five-year and ten-year plan, and this is this massive thing. It's not a diamond do. school, then. Yeah, no, I don't, I don't, I don't know. The world changes so fast, I don't even know how I would make plans like that. I mean, we... I would just keep making art and I would just keep doing it as best as I could because that's what I do and that's what I am. I'll tell you why I'm asking you, because at one point you were fascinated by, by you are, I think you are fascinated by Rivera and Carlo, aren't you? I, no, I absolutely am. Yeah. And like, if I could paint, if I could, you know, take over giant buildings, I would maybe. Maybe, yeah. maybe when I'm older, maybe when history slows down, I can memorialize it there. So but while it's not slowed down, the point is you, that, that, which is, you know, there is, a, there is, a, there is a, a, an urge to big things among all people who work in two dimensions and smelly bits of oil and pigment, yeah? There's yeah. a urge to go, whoa, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, obviously. Be obviously, yeah, like, like, look, look at my thing, look there at my thing. A, but but you know, you're saying to me, no, you do, that, that's not, the, there's a bigger urge just to get involved in the world I of real. I don't know, maybe, maybe I feel like it'd be in my hand if I say what I would do. I don't All know. Right. 
Okay, right, let's hear what you want to hear about. There are mics, and because it's being podcasted, it'd be better if you spoke in the mic, I think. So, sir, here. Um, we talked about your, your drawing. Uh, I'm also a big fan of your writing. I've actually got your piece uh, on why we want about we must create happiness in the age of monsters on top of my bed. I, I read it every morning because it's really inspiration for me. Um, another thing I wanted to ask you about was um, could you also expand on your experiences in the UAE? Because I grew up there oh, yeah. and oh, I knew what it was like. So you like. forgot the T word. And, um, you know, you hardly ever see any articles documenting what it's really like. And it was really inspirational to see somebody writing about it. So what we're referring to is another enemy of humanity. <laughs> well, I did two major articles in the UAE. Um, my little article was I confronted Donald Trump in Dubai, which I was very frightened of at the time, because Dubai is actually rich enough not to be an American proxy, and so I thought I was going to get hauled into jail for it. But I also did another article, which I think you're referring to, which was about uh, the men that are the construction workers that are building the great cities of the UAE. And particular, because I'm an artist, the men that are building these great museums. And these are guys, they're South Asian guys, they're getting paid $200 a month to work maybe 14 hours a day in the boiling sun doing construction work. They, um, there's a very, they have their passports confiscated. Um, you know, any sort of dissent is punished. But what, what I was really interested in is that this narrative in the U.S. is very standard. That like, you know, these men get recruited from villages. They get into debt. You know, they have their passports confiscated. They um, are horribly exploited. But I was also interested in, I was like, these men are, you know, also leaving their homes, they're traveling, you know, they have families to support. It's probably something very brave to, like, leave your village, you know, as a young man, go somewhere else you've never even been before, you know. And so I was really interested not just in their victimization, but in their resistance. And what I found was that there are dozens of strikes every year in the construction industry in the UAE. And this is a country where striking will get you arrested and deported, and then you'll go back home with, like, debt that you could never repay back home. And yet men are constantly striking there. And it's not much reported in the news, but it's because there are not these like passive cogs in the wheels of capitalism. People do resist. And um, I really, with my piece, um, I really wanted to um, not just chronicle people's victimhood, but uh, contribute to their resistance and their strength as well. Fantastic. Uh, another question, please. Go on. Uh, <laughs> Hello. Um, both of you are associated politically with the left. Um, yeah. Clearly, you've uh, you knew that was this question. You've been attacked by mainly the left, especially when it comes to the Middle East and Syria. Um, how has that affected your view of the world and affected your politics personally? Oh God, this is a very uh, personally hard thing. So I, I get attacked by the right too. Um, Trump, Donald Trump supporters recently spent a few days saying they wanted to kill me. They were very passionate about it. Uh, they're really into um, detailed rape fantasies with Mexicans. That's their kink. Um, I've learned <laughs> by the dozens of emails I've gotten. Um, but it's true. Oz is absolutely right. The uh, ferocity and um, tenacity with which I've been um, attacked by the left is something. And this is for supporting the Syrian revolution. It's a, yeah, it's for supporting against President Assad. It's for, um, yeah, it's for, it's for supporting the Syrian revolution, um, and, or for, even for saying that Assad is bad. See, cause, because, I mean, I, I mean, maybe there's some of you in here, the, the people who genuinely believe that Vladimir Putin and President Assad and Iran are the most progressive forces in the world. There are even some, <laughs> there are even some people very high up in the British establishment who actually think that. Yeah. And, and those of us on the left who believe that Syria was a revolution, that was betrayed by the West, became a civil war, is now a mess, for saying the first thing, 
that's what the troll yeah, no, happens. Like, you've been even more trolled than I have. Yeah. I was kind of uh, exiled in some ways. So I think that universal ethics are important. I think that the idea that politics can be reduced to some sort of game of team sports, particularly by people like me, like I'm, I'm not Syrian, I'm a Puerto Rican Jew. I don't have skin in this game. You know, The idea that I would reduce my politics to team sports and be like, well, America supports this, so this guy is the baddie, and Russia supports this, so this one is the goodie, and... and, and Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. <laughs> 